and we need you to come in your Bible with us to Luke's Gospel, chapter 17. Luke's Gospel, chapter 17. Appreciate all the hard work and effort from everyone concerned regarding uh, last weekend, which was Easter. Uh, what a blessing that was uh, to see the, all the children and youth and adults involved. And, and particularly Sunday night, this place was standing room only, literally. And that was tremendous to see that. And so we were greatly encouraged. All the effort, all the endeavor, uh, all paid off uh, in the end. So thank God for that. So Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, and reading from verse uh, 20. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you or among you. You are a citizen, believer in Christ. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You live in the kingdom of this world, but you live for the kingdom of God. Peter said that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. Paul said we are ambassadors for Christ. We are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. He further says my kingdom is not of this world. So you and I this morning are part of this kingdom of God on earth invisibly. We are the representatives of this invisible kingdom of God on earth. One day when Christ returns, of course, then the kingdom of God will be visibly manifested on the earth. So in a sense, the kingdom of God now is but not yet. That's the mysterious thing about the kingdom of God. It's now is, but yet not yet. And so there's a representation of it, which is us. But it hasn't come in all of its fullness quite yet. There will come a day when it will come in its fullness. So child of God, hold your hand up, stand tall. You are a child of the king. And as the old song used to say, his royal blood now flows through our veins. And there's such potential in the kingdom of God. There are no limits. It has no horizons. Isaiah 9 and 7, it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And one day, this kingdom of God will cover the earth the Bible says, as the waters covers the seas. In Psalm 22, in Psalm 23, in Psalm 24, those three little Psalms, Psalm 22 speaks of 
the cross. Psalm 23 speaks of the crook. Psalm 24 speaks of the crown. Psalm 22 speaks of our Savior. Psalm 23 speaks of our shepherd. Psalm 24 speaks of our sovereign. You know that Psalm 22 speaks of the cross because that was the psalm that Jesus quoted from. It begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 8, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delights in him. You can see the mocking of those that stood at the cross. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shred. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You brought me to the dust of death. Verse 17, they pierce my hands and my feet. I count all of my bones. They look at me and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots and so forth. And then, of course, you're so familiar with the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But in Psalm 24, towards the end of it, we see here the sovereign. We see the king of the kingdom that has come from the cross. And now we see him with the crown. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. We see in Isaiah chapter 53, that well-known messianic chapter in Isaiah and it talks about his suffering. Again, it talks about the cross from verse 3 all the way down to uh, verse 11. But then when you come to verse 12, it speaks of the crown. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And so within this kingdom, there is tremendous Potential, potential of growth, potential of multiplication, potential to the point when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes back again that the whole earth will be filled with His glory, as the Bible says. But not only that, there is tremendous privilege. Tremendous privilege. And let me explain something to you about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not the church. Sometimes we use those terms in a way that would seem like that they're both the same, but there's not. There is a distinct difference between the kingdom of God and the church. In fact, the apostles went about preaching the kingdom of God in Acts chapter 8. And in verse 12, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and 
the name of Jesus Christ. Both men and women were baptized. In chapter 19 of Acts, just a couple of verses. Speaking here of Paul. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. In chapter 28, In verse 23, again regarding Paul. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly detestified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And so the apostles went about preaching the kingdom of God. Now those of us who are the church, have accepted Christ's kingdom. Uh, We have submitted ourselves to its rule and to its reign. We enjoy its benefits and its blessings. And even though the two things are distinct, the kingdom of God and the church, yet they are inseparable because we are the representations on earth of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God on earth works through the church. Christ has given us the keys of the kingdom, the Bible says, and the powers of binding and loosing. I want you to think about this for a moment, the keys of the kingdom. In Luke chapter 11, just back a little bit. Listen to what Jesus said to the, to the religious scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 52, Woe to you, lawyers! For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. The lawyers, the scribes, were those who were entrusted with the truths of Scripture, with their knowledge and with their wisdom and with their training. They had the keys to unlock the kingdom of God to people. But they didn't do it. They kept it locked up. And even those who were trying to enter the kingdom, they did everything they could to dissuade them from coming into the kingdom of God. What a privilege they had. What an opportunity they were given to unlock the kingdom with the keys of knowledge and wisdom and power, but they didn't take it. They refused it. And they did their best to stop others entering in. In Romans chapter 3. What advantage then has the Jew? This is verse 1 of Romans 3. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Well, much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Or the scriptures. God committed to them the oracles of God. And they should have took the scriptures and with the keys of knowledge that they had to open up that men and women might understand, but instead they rejected and they refused. And now God has given unto us the keys of the kingdom of God. And we have the keys 
of wisdom and knowledge and of power that enables us to be able to release men and women from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. God has made us responsible in our generation to be able to go and to share with men and women the kingdom of God. To be able to sit down and explain to them and open their eyes and tell them the truth because we have got the ability to do it. God has given by His Spirit and by His Word the keys of knowledge and wisdom to be able to share with others. And that's why we keep banging on about it because it's our responsibility. No one else's. Be lovely if somebody else would go to your family and share. Be lovely if somebody else would talk to your neighbor and share. But God says, you do it. I have given you the keys of wisdom and knowledge. And those who have been going to the evangelism courses during the week are learning some of the keys. Their mind is expanding. They're being more enlightened. And sooner or later, they'll be in a conversation And that will come back to them. And they'll be able to share and unlock some of the truths that people need to hear. Now, not everybody will receive it. Not everyone will accept it. But we ought to be able at least to do it. Can you say amen to that? It is not terribly hard. It just requires us looking at some scriptures and putting some together and praying about it and saying, God, open their eyes as we begin to share. And God will help us and he'll give us the grace to be able to do it. So God has given us, what a privilege, the keys of the kingdom. By the way, whenever this gospel of the kingdom of God, whenever it's spread throughout the whole world to every nation, then the king will come back. And then his kingdom will be visible. And he will be the king of the kingdom. And he will rule and he will reign. So our job is to get the message out. To get it out there. And then there's tremendous provision. Everything we need as citizens of this kingdom and as the church declaring his kingdom, we have in Christ We are heirs and we're joint heirs with Jesus. Everything we will ever need to declare this kingdom, God has given to each and every one of us, not just the preacher in the pulpit, but each and every one of you have got the same keys and have got the same provisions and have got the same blessings. Now here are some of the provisions that I'm talking about. What God has done for us, what he's doing for us, what he has given to us. Let's have a little look at Ephesians. Ephesians chapter chapter 1. We'll look at chapter 2 in a moment, but look at chapter 1. Ephesians is one of those great epistles. If there's any epistle that you should read probably more than any other, it's probably Ephesians. If you look at all of my Bibles, and I don't know how many I have at home, if you look at all of my Bibles and if you close them, 
Well, the best will in the world, your fingers sometimes are not, they're a bit greasy and dirty and you, you wash them, but with that beautiful light India paper, eventually it gets kind of a little bit grubby, doesn't it, if you have it for a few years. If you were to look at all my Bibles, you would see that particularly in around those epistles, and especially in Ephesians, they have been read continually and marked continually. And no matter how many years you read them and mark them, you will always get something fresh and new and a blessing from them. And we ought to read them continually. Chapter 1, verse 3 to verse 6. This shows us the work of the Father. We're going to look at the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit just in this little chapter here. All the provisions that God has made for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings, a blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accept in the Beloved. You could preach for a month in those few verses right there. There's so much truth there's so much theology. There's so much of God just in those few verses that you, I don't have time to expound on this morning. But look at it. You have adoption, predestination, accept in the beloved, blessed with spiritual blessing in heavenly places, chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. So many things to show us that God, Almighty God, even from the foundation of the world had us in mind. And had a plan for our lives to save us, to win us to his son. And then from verse 7 down to verse 12, speaks of the work of the son. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Thank God for the work of God's Son on the cross that has won us to himself. Thank God that Father and Son were working in tandem in order to win you in order to save you, in order to reveal His plan for your whole life, not only in time, but into eternity. And then there's the work of the Holy Spirit, verse 13 and 14. In, in Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. 
See the times it says to the praise of his glory. At least three times it's mentioned we read today. Everything he has done for us is to the praise of his glory that we and men may glorify him. And there's the precious work of the Holy Spirit sealing us, sealing us until the redemption of the purchased possession. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment on your life until Christ comes back to claim you and to take you as his purchased possession. It's wonderful the provision that God has made for us, isn't it? And then as we go into chapter 2, the first few verses there, verses 1 to 3, this shows us what we were. And you he has made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. That's what we were. We thought we were okay, didn't we? Most of us thought we were fine people. But in God's sight, all our works were as filthy rags. And we were just the same as everybody else. Lost and undone. Children of disobedience. <laughs> Carried away by our own desires. Fulfilling our own desires. But then verse 4, 5, and 6. This is what we are. But God who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. That's what we are right now. Children of the King, seated spiritually in heavenly places in Christ. But look, verse 7, what we shall be that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's going to take all of eternity for God to reveal all of the exceeding riches of his grace towards you. <laughs> eternity is a long time, and it's going to take all of that just for God to fully express the riches of his grace in our lives. What does that mean? There's not a human being on earth that knows what that means. It's beyond our comprehension. <laughs> you know, this is going to be the wonderful thing when we go to the glory. There's so much we still don't know that God has hidden from us that he will reveal in the eternity. It's going to be wonderful, isn't it? What we were, what we are, what we shall be, and then how it was all made possible. In verse 8 to verse 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Saved by grace through faith. 
That's how it was all made possible. What provision has God given us in this kingdom? And then there's power. There's power. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. It's not in human eloquence or excellence of speech, but in power. Now, the reason why the Apostle Paul wrote that, 1 Corinthians 4.20, is because there was those who had come into the Corinthian church when he was gone. And they were great orators. They had wonderful skills of communication. And they were persuading men, and they were swaying minds. In comparison to Paul, these men appeared great. They had great sway over the congregation. But the trouble was they were false teachers leading men astray. They had the form of godliness, but they were denying the power of it. Like many today, like many churchmen today, has the form of godliness, but denies the power of it to save and to deliver and to change a life from the inside out. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power, in the dunamis and the exousia of God, of the Holy Spirit, in the inherent dynamic power, that's the dunamis, and in the exousia, the authority of the Holy Spirit. So every single believer has the Dynamis of the Holy Spirit and the exousia. Every single one of you, without exception, if you're born again of the Spirit of God, you have the Holy Spirit and you have His power and you have His authority. And God has given that to each and every one of us. In Luke chapter 10, again, just back a little bit. Verse 17, remember Jesus has sent the 70 out. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by in any means hurt you. I have given you exousia. I have given you authority over all the dynamis, all the inherent power of the evil one. And he's got a lot of inherent power. You know that's true, don't you? But we have got authority over that in Jesus' name. This is what he's saying here. Then he said, then he said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. There's a tendency in us as human beings, and particularly as believers, there's a tendency to rejoice in the power of God. Who among us wouldn't want more demonstration of the power of God 
in our individual lives. Can you say amen? But there's a tendency. The more of God's power that will be demonstrated in life, the more the concentration, the focus will become on the power. And Jesus says, be careful. Be careful. What you really need to rejoice about is the fact that your names are written in the book of life because that's what I have done for you on the cross. Jesus never lets us get far away from what he's done for us on the cross. Sure he doesn't. He wants us to remember that. But there is power available for each and every one of us. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, we have got authority over the evil one and all of his evil forces. And God has given us that. And if we're going to demonstrate his kingdom and declare his kingdom, then we got to know that we have power over the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, as Paul talks about. And then there is permanence. Permanence. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And you know that scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, is a great resurrection chapter. And he goes on to talk about, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The kingdom is a permanent kingdom. God's plans will not be denied and they will not be delayed. God's kingdom is permanent. In Luke chapter 1, which is normally the Christmas story, but in Luke chapter 1, the angel's message to Mary. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. There is something of permanence in the kingdom of of God. Kingdoms come and go. Empires rise and fall. But the kingdom of God goes on forever. And it will never fall. And it's continually on the rise. In Daniel chapter 2, there's that wonderful uh, story in Daniel chapter 2. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, But Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream." Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give thee interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. 
If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut to pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. So you can see he's not in a very good mood, is he? He's a bit grumpy, isn't he? He's had this dream and for the life of me, he can't remember what it was. Did you ever have one of those dreams? You get up the next morning, you're racking your brains trying to remember what that was that woke you up in the middle of the night and you can't remember well, that was one of those dreams that he had. However, if you tell the dream and in its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time, because you see my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I know that you can give me its interpretation. Now, right there is the reason why he forgot the dream, because the interpretation was so important. See, any of those astrologers, if he had told them the dream, any of them could have made up any story <laughs> and probably made up something that would have been to his advantage. But God made sure he couldn't remember the dream so that there'd only be one person in the whole kingdom would tell him the dream. And once he knew the dream and he knew the man who gave the dream was true, then he could believe the interpretation of the dream. Are you still with me? The Chaldeans answered, the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, therefore, no king, sorry, therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Ariok, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? And Ariok made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time, that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house. See how God had given Daniel favor with the king here? Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his companions. That they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning the secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. And have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. 
Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the strollers, magicians, the soothsayers, cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while you were on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for your sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you. Its form was awesome. This image head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image of its, on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze and the silver and gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them can be found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. The image, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had spoke of empires. The gold was the Babylonian empire, the head, that was him. The chest and arms of silver which would follow him would be the Medo Persian Empire. The two legs of iron was the Roman Empire divided into the eastern and western division. The feet and toes made of iron and clay mixed. This is the revised Roman Empire. This is the Antichrist Empire which is yet to come, which is being formed even as we speak. So this particular dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that only Daniel could interpret was a dream that was so profound, that was so prophetic, that so dealt with empires and nations in the past and his present and in even our future. But the important thing was this, was this stone that was cut out without hands that struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. This is the kingdom of God. This is Christ's kingdom that will come in the last days and that will break to pieces the empire, the kingdom of Antichrist. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. Glory to God. And so we see, even as we speak today, 
in 2012. Isn't it amazing that a lot of those ancient nations like Egypt and Iran, which was Persia, and all these nations and Syria, the Syrian nation, all those old ancient names, they're in our TV every day, they're headline news every day, and Israel, of course, in the midst of it all. And so the whole prophetic pot is brewing. And the kingdom of Antichrist will come. And it will rule for a while. But then the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, it will come. And it will smash in pieces. And in that stone cut out without hands, that supernatural, that mysterious stone, that is not of man's making. It will fill the whole earth. It will grow like a great mountain that will fill the whole earth. Glory to God. Now we know that Christ is going to be the king of that kingdom. In Acts chapter 4. Peter's preaching here in verse 8 of Acts 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief corner stone. This stone cut out without hands that Daniel talked about. This king of this kingdom that will become a great kingdom that would cover the whole earth. Well, Peter's talking about this stone. He's talking about this king. He's talking about this kingdom. And then, if we go a little further, in 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll soon be through here. Well, let me read verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So he's taught the believers. Coming to him as to a living stone. Here's this stone again. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also... As living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So not only is Christ the stone, but you are living stones that Christ is building up into a great temple. So he is. But look at this in Luke chapter 20. 
Luke chapter 20, we're almost through. Verse 17, he's addressing these scribes and Pharisees. He gave them a parable. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. But note this. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken. Whoever submits to Christ will be broken in the best possible way. Our pride will be broken. Our rebellion will be broken. Our unbelief will be broken. But if we persist on and on, as many do, then, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. If we submit to Christ, then we'll be broken. But if a man or woman refuses to submit to Christ, one day Christ will break him. The stone will fall on him. And he'll be broken in a way that he didn't want to be broken. Doesn't the Bible say that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? You and I have done that on this earth in this time. But those who don't, those who will not, those who refuse to, will one day have to, have to, no other choice, because that stone will break them. For he must reign. Colossians 1, 15 and 18 says that he might have the preeminence. You and I are the representatives of the kingdom of God. And we are the representatives of the king of the kingdom of God. Aren't you glad for that? And so he has given us privileges, provisions, so much potential, power, permanence, preeminence he's got. What a kingdom we live in. What a kingdom we're part of. And it's made us different, hasn't it? We're different than the kingdom of this world. We're in it, but we're not of it. We're in it, but we're not of it. Amen? Tonight, I want to continue this theme just for tonight. And I want us to talk more about this powerful kingdom of God that you and I are a part of as believers in Christ, as the church. Let's pray.